Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, one of our greatest poets. The audience pricks an intellectual ear. Stravinsky, quite the concert of the year. Forgetting now the hullabaloo they made, the audience pricks an intellectual ear. Bassoons begin. Sonority envelops our auditory innocence and brings to me, I must admit, some drift of things omnific, seminal, and adolescent. Men in boaters, far from Henley, girls in pink and blue taffeta, in that long summer I hunted, played cricket, but only watched tennis. God was in his heaven, and there were sausages for breakfast. And in small recruiting offices, dull young men wait to inscribe, in paper choirs, the names of the living and the dead. And that was a scene from Benediction about the turbulent life and times of acclaimed World War I British poet Siegfried Sassoon, portrayed by Jack Loudon as he reads his work. The writer and decorated soldier was a complex man who survived the horrors of fighting in the First World War and decorated, but who became a vocal critic and anti-war voice who refused to return to battle and was as a result sent to a mental hospital emerging as a leading anti-war poet of his time. Sassoon was broken by the horrors of war, as well as consumed in his life journey on a quest for salvation, for benediction. And the veteran writer and director of Benediction, the esteemed British filmmaker Terence Davies, phones in from London to the show. A novelist as well, and the director of the biographical features, Distant Voices Still Lives, The Long Day Closes, The House of Mirth, Of Time in the City, Sunset Song, and most recently, A Quiet Passion about the life and poetry of Emily Dickinson. Davies discusses war, poetry, and how his own working-class roots shape his perspective on the upper-class lives, like Sassoon, that he scrutinizes in his movies. And we'll hear more from the poet's work during this conversation, including Sassoon's devastation upon hearing about the death at the front of likewise esteemed World War II poet and beloved friend Wilfred Owen just a week before the end of the war was declared, and likewise detained at that mental hospital. Davies will also delve into the one time he emerged from behind the camera to assume the role of an actor, and why. First, some scenes from Benediction, then Terence Davies. Ladies and gentlemen, one of our greatest poets. <clears throat> Name, Sassoon Siegfried. Rank, second lieutenant. Disease? I've had some sort of breakdown. Your lot is with the ghosts of soldiers dead and I am in the field where men must fight. Your duty lies in obeying orders. In the face of such slaughter, one cannot simply order one's conscience. Good morning, Doctor. We have a house magazine. I'm sure it would welcome a contribution. Then I'll try to write something light and amusing. There's no need to go that far. Who is this extremely beautiful young man? Sassoon, Siegfried. Sounds Wagnerian. I'm anxious to meet our distinguished guest. All the fine young cannibals. What should I do about my hair? Have you considered topiary? It's one of the inconveniences of the shadow life we lead. Friends may come, friends may go. Enemies are always faithful. Life goes slowly on. Trying to understand the enigma of other people. Too afraid. Too inhibited. You're not alone. My whole future could depend on you. 
In my life, I feel as though I've been waiting for a catastrophe to happen. Most people live for the moment. You live for eternity. Hello, and welcome to our show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Why was The Life of Siegfried Sassoon your choice for your latest film? Well, it wasn't really my choice, really. Actually, it was six years ago, and Ben Roberts, who is at the BFI, suggested that I do a film about him. And I'd known some of the poetry, but not all of it. And then I said yes, and I started to research it. Um, that's, that's what I really wanted to do it, because he had an extraordinary life. And um, he was obviously a great poet, only the, the only one of three who survived. I mean, um, the other two, as you know, were killed. Um, but it was a huge life, and it was very difficult as to what to leave out, because he did. He knew everybody, and he went everywhere. So that was a bit daunting. Hence, it took six years to get to the screen. Now, Benediction is very much about war and the horrors of war. Is that theme autobiographical or personal for you in any way, your own or your family history? Not really. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the Great War, um, it, it's so, so much part of European history, especially in England, because there isn't a single town or village that didn't lose people. So it was a huge impact on the country's psyche. And I still think has a, a, a great deal of power still there. Um, now, in, ev in every film that you make, really, you give a part of yourself mm. as well. And the thing that emerged from this film at, at, at the end of shooting it was that I realized that what he was doing throughout his life, he was searching for redemption and never found it because you can't find redemption in other people or art or religion. You could only find it within yourself. And he didn't find that redemption. And in that sense, it's very autobiographical for me. And what about that you've lived your own life through endless wars in your lifetime that we continue to see today? Did that influence your film? And also Sassoon's terrible struggle emotionally with the death of poet and close friend Wilfred Owen on the battlefield just a week before the end of the war. Wilfred was killed just a week before the war ended. I never said goodbye to him. On the idle hill of summer, Sleepy with the flow of streams. Far I hear the steady drummer, Drumming like a noise in dreams. Far and near and low and louder, On the roads of earth go by, Dear to friends and food for powder, Soldiers marching, all to die. East and west in fields forgotten Bleach the bones of comrades slain. Lovely lads, and dead, and rotten. None that go return again. Far the calling bugles hollow. High the screaming fife replies. Gay the files of scarlet follow. Woman bore me. I will rise. As I say, the, the First World War is such a cataclysm in, in Europe. I mean, it really changed Europe forever. Um, so it's very much in the psyche of the people who live in Europe. Um, I, I think it's not the same in the States because, you know, you, you came in very late and lost a lot of people too. Um, and that's when you started to emerge as the, the new great power, um, as all these monarchies fell. Um, but so war per se, I, did, I, I didn't, that wasn't in my consciousness when I was writing it. And would you say you identify with Sassoon creatively yourself? 
and your own struggle to be heard as an independent voice in a world increasingly controlled artistically by money interests? Yes, I, I have to say that is the case. Um, you And what it does do, um, you get sick of the struggle. And there are times when you think, I have always put my work first. And I think, was it was that the right thing to do? Um, and I'm very, very much in two minds as to whether it was the correct thing to do. Um, so that, that's been a very salutary experience, I must say. Because you did then you then argue, well, does art achieve anything? Is it is it worth it anyway? And I honestly don't know. And please talk about the choice and significance of your film title Benediction. Well, it it's um, literally means drawing a blessing down from God. That's literally its meaning. Um and of course he's in in, in a way, he's always asking for some kind of redemption, asking for some kind of forgiveness. Um, so it seemed the right, the right, it seemed the right title. And titles are like everything else. You feel them. They come to you and you think, oh, I think they're right now. <laughs> but it, again, it's as vague as that, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, an unusual move, you emerged from behind the camera to assume the role of an actor with your short film, But Why, last year. What was your inspiration for that film? I ascend the stairs. I descend the stairs. But why? All is still, still as glass. Was there once a purpose? Was there once a goal? Did I love a moment? Did I love a soul? Family, yes. Mother, always. Fires in the parlor reflected in the polished wood. Sighs at midnight, her apron, her soft, warm hands. All the ephemera of love. She stands there ironing my small shirt. Then hankies too. But all is gone now. Buried under memory's thick silt. I ascend the stairs. I descend the stairs, but why? Oh, well, I was asked to do it for the Vienna Film Festival. They were holding um, a computer retrospective of my work, and they asked me, would I do um, just a minute or so in the film? Um, as it happens, I write poetry as well. And I, I recently completed uh, the poem that's on there called But Why? Um, and we, we shot it at the end of Benediction. They were the type of last shots we did. Um, it just seemed uh, uh, the right thing to do because, you know, uh, uh, rooms and empty rooms um, are very much part of my style, I suppose. Um, and the people, the memory of the people that inhabited. Um, so it was, it was that that I wanted um, to do. Um, and I think that little poem does it. I mean, it's amazing what you can do in one and a half minutes. <laughs> and I read that your roots are working class. How would you say that has influenced your films politically, and especially in terms of your approach to portraying upper-class subjects like Sassoon and in such a tightly class-controlled society in British culture? Well, you... I mean, I did. I, I did grow up in a, a large working class family. I'm the youngest of ten, seven surviving, um, and it was it was hard because it was hard for everybody just after the war. Um, but the that sense of community um, was very, very deeply strong in me. On that, that one, that's what one had when was growing, was growing up. We had nothing, but we had each other. Um, and the main culture at the time was, of course, was the cinema um, and radio. Um, and my first film at seven was Singing in the Rain. How could you not want to make movies after, see, after seeing that? One of the one of the truly great um, films that happens to be a musical as well. Um, but I also grew up in that era where all the great film musicals were made really for me. Um, so that was a huge influence. Um, but there's there's part of um, I think part in, in everyone in this country that whatever class you come from, you you look at the other parts of the class and you kind of want to dis dissect them and um, see them for what they are. But also behind that as well, there's also a kind of um, 
kind envy, if you see what I mean. Mm. <laughs> it, would, it would be nice to have lives like that. Mm. Privileged though they were. Inevitably, because I wasn't, I wasn't born to that world. So I see it from the outside. And what would you hope to convey to audiences about Sassoon and about war? Well, the, the awful cliche is that, you know, war never achieves anything. Uh, war shows human beings at their very, very worst. Um, look at what's happening in uh, Ukraine. Um, but also it brings out the best in people. Why people still need to go to war is still a complete mystery. Um, I would hope that anybody who saw it would be sympathetic to that idea, but also be sympathetic to the fact that at the end of the film, Sassoon is not a happy man. He's not fulfilled. Uh, in that sense, I, I would hope that they would watch it sympathetically. And you've had to struggle as a filmmaker to make films your way. Why have you never given up on that to take an easier road for yourself and that you continue to struggle no matter what? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm afraid so. That's it. That's the reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I can't do something that I don't believe in. I was like that as a child. The subjects I had no interest in, I did very badly at. I couldn't care less, you know, about chemistry or physics. I just couldn't have cared less. I, I was much more drawn to um, language and history um, and geography. Um, so if, if I can't see the frame, then I can't write it. I don't know what is in the mise-en-scene. I don't know what's on the soundtrack. I've got to believe what I do um, and the way in which I do it. Um, that, unfortunately, when you're outside of the mainstream, becomes very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in the nature of screen time, um, which is always, you know, what the, the, the next cut always implies that that's the next thing which happened. But that's not that interesting. I mean, we, we, those are some of the greatest films have been made with a linear narrative. I, I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing linear narrative, but I think it's come to the end of its useful life. Um, and it, it's much, much more, it's much richer to move in and out of time, to show a narrative, to reveal a narrative. Um, and that's what I'm drawn to. But I mean, in the end, I suppose um, I'll get either too old or two people will just say, no, we don't want to make this film, these kinds of films anymore. It's always a struggle. I suspect it always will be. And are you working on anything next or contemplating anything next? Yes, um, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful novel by Stefan Zweig, who wrote Letter from an Unknown Woman. It's called The Post Office Girl, and we're trying to get um, the money uh, to shoot that. I mean, and already that's taken over three years, and we're still looking for the money. And when Terence Davies looks in the mirror, what does he see? Some, someone who would, be, who would prefer to be in the past, which is what I feel safest with. I don't understand. I don't understand the modern world. I'm a complete technophobe. Um, and I'm both frightened of it and horrified of it. Um, I, I think the level of narcissism is dreadful. But the fact that you can't do anything without some sort of electronic device, that I can't bear. I really feel completely alien. Okay, thank you, Terence Davies, for calling into the show. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. What passing bells for these who die as cattle. Only the monstrous anger of the guns. Only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries for them from prayers or bells, nor any voice of mourning. Save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells, and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall. There are flowers the tenderness of silent minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds.
and Benediction is out now in release. And coming up next on Arts Express, Bro on the Global Television Beat, Killer Cops in New Baltimore and Paris series. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro on Baltimore cops terrorizing the black community there over the last decade and the case of an Algerian student beaten to death by Paris police in 1986. First, some scenes from that Baltimore dramatic expose, We Own the City, then Dennis Bro. Do you guys know who I am? Hey, so tell me something. We asked the questions. I'm just curious. I mean, what brought y'all into us? Long story. A lot of twists. No doubt. No doubt. I'm Nicole Steele with the Department of Justice. In a city of 620,000, BPD cops reported over 300,000 pedestrian stops in the last five years. You guys have locked up and beat on so many people, we can't get 12 in a box who are willing to trust what a cop says. Could there ever be a moment where a police officer performed their job in such a manner that you would agree with a finding that he should be fired for abusive behavior or brutality? Certainly. Has it ever happened? doing our jobs. What do people want for us to stop policing? They want us to do it without the collateral damage. You know what the Baltimore cops, you don't have complaints of doing every day? No. They sure as hell ain't policing. And you can't just blame the cops. We serve the politicians who thrive on being tough on crime. And when they reinstated me, they put me in a unit made up of a bunch of the biggest crooks in the whole goddamn department. These men right here, my detectives, we do things by the book. Mr. Demandis, I'm living. Drug war justifies a lot. Mr. Domenico. This is a dysfunctional police department with a culture that looks at accountability as a four-letter word. I told you weeks ago about a federal investigation. There's always a rumor of a federal investigation. It never happens. It's Baltimore. It's been going on for a long while. We just followed the leader. Am I going to lose my job over this? Look around. We built this machine where half the damn country depart with money and power to chew up the other half. They didn't have anything to begin with. Watch it work. I feel like a guy. I teach these young kids to be good, honest cops. Go, please! The rest is up to them. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Thick Blue Line, Killer Cops in Baltimore and Paris. Post 9-11, with the popularity of CSI as George W. Bush's War on Terror overlapped with George Bush's War on Drugs, the airways were filled with every conceivable kind of law enforcement team unproblematic and uncorrupted, battling all kinds of crime. These squads ranged from the Law & Order franchise, which began over 20 years ago and has still not yet run its course, to the Navy, NCIS, to FBI profilers who anticipate future crimes, criminal minds, and cops who sort through the past to locate lawbreakers in cold case. These series continue to be popular and to be the dominant image of the police in popular media. However, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests, which though they took place in 2020, are just now starting to register on serial television, two shows have now appeared which offer a startlingly different view of the police and policing. From Disney Plus, there's Uskin, about the death of a young Algerian student in 1986 at the hands of the French police. And from HBO comes We Own This City by the creators of The Wire, about a division of the Baltimore police described as 1930s gangsters who terrorized the black inhabitants of the city over the last decade. Both are limited series of four and six episodes, respectively, and both are fictionalized representations of actual events. Uskin follows the Algerian family of that name as they attempt to find justice for their youngest son, Malik, beaten to death by three cops in the midst of a student protest in the Latin Quarter that he was a part of. The police deny any involvement in the killing with the French Minister of the Interior, Olivier Gourmet, 
staunchly moral in his quest for a cover-up, searching not for what happened to this budding student whose life is brutally snatched from him, but rather looking instead for a way to shift guilt, and finally alighting on the boy's fragile condition as the excuse. We watch the flowering of Malik's sister, Sarah, Muna Sulem, as she indicts the police at the trial of two of the cops, and we are treated to the spectacle of the French socialist president, Mitterrand, arriving at the family's house for a photo opportunity, arranged by posting him next to the window with the best light, while the family becomes props in the background. Finally, we watch French justice in one of the first ever cases with cops being held responsible for police violence, as the jury first convicts and then exonerates and whitewashes the guilty defendants. This is a strong series throughout, registering a racist history of prejudice against Algerians that the family witnesses upon their arrival in the country in 1961, and what was a mass killing spearheaded by the police of perhaps 300 Algerians, whose bodies were then tossed off the Pont Neuf Bridge in the center of Paris. The series unfortunately ends not with an outrageous bang at the verdict, but with a timid whimper, as we are shown the actual family today. It might better have countered the verdict with another spirited denouncement from Malik's sister, Sarah. More brutal, because more systematic, is David Simon and George Pelicanos's We Own This City, based on the book by Baltimore Sun reporter Justin Fenton, part of a Pulitzer Prize-winning team. The series is solidly focused on the leader of Baltimore's gun trace task force, Wayne Jenkins, charged not with confiscating individual guns, but with finding the source of the weapons. Instead, Jenkins is shown using his squad to track down dealers in order to steal their money and confiscate their product to sell to his own fence, who skims 15% off the top and then resells the drugs back on the street. Jenkins and his men break and enter cars and houses and then request search warrants. In one sequence, they steal half of the $200,000 they find in a dealer's safe, and then for the body cameras they are required to wear, stage a phony reopening of the safe, now shorn of half its contents, with Jenkins directing the film before they shoot. A frantic chase by Jenkins, with little or no evidence of drugs or guns, results in the death of an old man who the pursued victim crashes into. Jenkins steals from a dwarfish sex worker, boasting that he stole twice what she asked for, and then eludes a 20-day suspension because of his activity in leading a confrontation with protesters over the death and custody of a young, well-liked Baltimorean, Freddie Gray. On top of that, Jenkins is shown halting the looting of a Rite Aid in the subsequent rebellion, but then confiscating the drugs himself and taking them to the fence, who recognizes they are mostly oxy and who will then redistribute them to needy addicts. If the now disbanded Gun Trace Task Force was actually doing its duty in tracking arms to their source, it might have arrested the 16,693 arms makers in the U.S., who, a recent Department of Justice report acknowledged, manufactured 71 million firearms in 2020. Officers like Jenkins, promoted to sergeant and later given the Police Medal of Honor, remain on the force because of the professional code introduced by the LAPD's Chief Parker, claiming that police as professionals with their own standard of conduct can best discipline themselves. Instead, we watch the police commissioner throwing up his hands and claiming the streets are too unruly to take officers like Jenkins out of action. Jenkins and his fellows also cheated the city out of a large amount of money by exaggerating overtime. In the opening of the series, Jenkins, in a training session with other police, claims that if cops don't play rough, we lose the streets. The answer to this false claim is in the later scene where Jenkins is instructing his squad on how to falsely fill out overtime sheets and ends by asserting, we own this city. Jenkins' resolute lawbreakers are a resounding answer and ultimate depiction of the previously mentioned fun-loving camaraderie of the post 9-11 TV squads. The series does not extrapolate larger points beyond the police, but as it unfolds, there are larger points to be made. The first is along the lines of Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine, which finds a link between U.S. domestic violence and U.S. weapons manufacturing and foreign violence. Before entering the Baltimore police, Jenkins was a Marine who, as Fenton relates in his book, was described by his sergeant as exhibiting the utmost flawless character that I've ever ran into over my 20 years of serving this great country. This great country boasts a military budget greater than the next nine countries in the world, while claiming it is constantly being threatened, and which, over the protests of European and developing world leaders such as Italy's Mario Monti and Indonesia's Jocko Jokowi, continues to preach endless war in Ukraine. 
It's not a mistake that this country produces characters like Jenkins for its war at home. That war on the streets of the U.S. is waged mainly against its black and minority citizens. Critics pointed out initially that the police and we own the city are colorblind, with many of the subordinates on Jenkins' squad being black officers. However, it's still Jenkins, the white Marine, in charge. The larger point, though, is that the devastation the squad wrecks is shown as entirely against the black population of Baltimore, viewed by Jenkins and his cohorts as not victims of impoverished neighborhoods infected with guns and weapons, but always already as criminals. Jenkins' attitude is the unquestioned adoption of what in the 30s and 40s is now seen as a kind of eugenics, where minority neighborhoods are viewed as genetically criminally inclined, not because they are lawbreakers, but because they are poor and stand outside the middle-class propriety of a Jenkins who lived in a comfortable Baltimore suburb. There may be black and white behind the blue line, but that line, as the series illustrates in almost every scene, is used to regulate and destroy all attempts at community. This community and its collectivity is perceived as threatening those who seem to look askance, but ultimately look away, both in the U.S. and the world, from the state-sanctioned violence needed to maintain their status. Dennis Bro is the author of The Precinct with a Golden Arm, the upcoming third volume in the Harry Palmer mystery trilogy, whose subject is the LAPD, the pharmaceutical industry, and Mexican culture in L.A. And this is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And now on Arts Express. A long time ago, everyone in Britain got in a big old boat and we set sail and we robbed, and this will sound far-fetched, everyone in the world. <laughs> Do you remember that? What a spree that was. Do you remember the great heist? What a spree. And we got all the swag, didn't we? And we took it back to old Blighty and we hid it, this is the clever part, we hid it in a museum. <laughs> Last place anyone looks. <laughs> now it's the modern day, and all the countries who stole stuff from are asking for their stuff back. But, uh, don't look worried. We're totally saying the blanket, no. <laughs> Hi, this is Jack Shalom. A memorable day in any big city child's upbringing is when they first enter a large museum and experience the wonders of a giant dinosaur skeleton or an ancient mummy, while the adults peer into row upon row of glass cases filled with shards of clay pots and broken arrowheads. But in a new book, Decolonize Museums, our guest Shimrit Lee suggests that maybe museums are not as innocent as they seem. I'm very happy to be speaking with Shimrit Lee. Hi, Shimrit. Hi, thanks for having me. Shimrit, you start off your book with a scene from the film Black Panther. Tell us about that. Yes, Black Panther, one of the first Black superhero blockbusters. And during one of the scenes of this film, you have the villain going into a museum, which many might see as sort of a stand-in for the British Museum. And as he's standing in front of one of the glass cases, admiring an artifact, a white curator comes up to him and offers to tell him a little bit about the display, kind of explaining that this was a war hammer made by um, the Fula tribe in Benin. And he immediately interrupts her and says, actually, no, this was taken by British soldiers in Benin and it's from Wakanda. Um, and then of course he goes on to smash the glass and off with this war hammer. Um, and this was one of the most memorable scenes of the movie for me, as it kind of points to a larger process of repatriation battles within the museum world, in which people from across the global south, indigenous people and formerly colonized people, are beginning to demand that their cultural heritage be returned to them. Well, I, I think many of us have a kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark vision in our heads about the acquisition of rare <laughs> objects. How does an artwork or an artifact end up in a museum? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. And I think throughout the book, I, um, I do draw off of pop culture references because so much of what we understand from museums has filtered through to our imaginations through these various movies and narratives, which actually completely erases and decontextualizes where these artifacts have actually come from. You know, the museum presents itself as this 
neutral space for conservation and education. And yes, part of that is true, but it's not the full story at all. You really can't go into a natural history museum in much of the Western world without coming across some sort of material artifact that was taken from the former colonies. So maybe you can give us what are some of the most egregious Mm -hmm. instances of unrepatriated theft by museums? Sure. I mean, one of the most infamous cases of unrepatriated objects would be the Benin bronzes. These are thousands of royal and sacred objects that were violently taken from what is now present-day Nigeria by British troops. And these items, they're over, I would say, in 160 museum collections, numerous private collections all over the world. They're not just bronzes, they're ivory tusks, they're masks. It's almost hard just to get a sense of the scale of the Benin bronzes that are currently across the globe. One of the major museums in Paris holds over 90% of the material and cultural heritage of the entirety of sub-Saharan Africa, which is very shocking. And so, you know, after years of foot dragging in November of last year, the French legislature finally passed a bill that would allow for the restitution of 26 of these looted artifacts to be returned to Nigeria. Now, one of the most famous ones that even I heard of are the Elgin marbles. How did the British Museum end up with those? The Elgin marbles, also known as the Parthenon marbles, these were marble friezes lining the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis in Athens. And they were removed by the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire at the turn of the 19th century. Um, And for years, Greece has called for a return of these Parthenon marbles, which are currently held in the British Museum. And actually, as of, I believe, two weeks ago, May 17th, the UK and Greece have finally agreed to formal talks regarding the Parthenon marbles. It's so maddening to hear that, that they have to have kind of peace talks over this theft. Yes, there's no actual teeth of when it comes to legislation. There's no formal rules regarding the return of the Parthenon marbles. It's really about talks um, between these two countries. And for some reason, it was only recently where these two countries agreed to sit down with one another. So really, they are still very much holding on to these marbles as um, their own private property in a way, while erasing where they came from, erasing the controversy behind them. But keep an eye on the news. I think uh, you know this could change at any moment, depending on how these talks go. Repatriation means not only of artifacts, but sometimes even of human remains too, doesn't it? Yes. Um, it's a very dark history. Some scholars have called museums, they have got skeletons in their closet, so to speak, and Literally. that's not an overstatement. <laughs> And so it was very disturbing. I'm currently based in Philadelphia, where the Penn Museum has recently come under attack for its Morton collection. This is a collection of skeletons from, of skulls that have come from enslaved Africans in Cuba, as well as from African-American Philadelphians. You might have heard of the MOVE bombing in 1985. This mm-hmm. was a an instance of racialized state violence in which the Philadelphia Police Department bombed a residential home, killing 11 people, destroying an entire block. And recently it was uncovered that many of these bombing victims, their skulls ended up in the collection of the Penn Museum. Oh my Um, God. Shimrit, I mean, that, that was probably the most shocking thing that I had read in your book. The move bombings were, you know, I remember them. It was it was horrifying. They set that whole compound on fire. These people were burned alive, and then the, and then they're going to be claimed that these are museum artifacts. I mean, oh, those poor poor people. And I guess that gets us to the next point, which is in some cases these are 
sacred objects in a Mm. sense, and maybe they're not meant to be preserved in any way, right? The sacred is no longer sacred if it's turned into a commodity. Right. And I, I, I talk about that tension as well when I speak about human remains that are currently held at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, mm-hmm. specifically bones from the Herero people that were collected from German colonial officials during what many consider to be the first modern genocide. These bones were collected under horrific circumstances They were sold to the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And now, actually, the ancestors of those survivors from Namibia can't um, actually agree with what to do with those bones. Some want them to be displayed as kind of a monument to this horrific crime against humanity. Some want these bones to be buried in order for a spiritual transition so that these ancestors can finally go from this life to the next life through a proper traditional funerary practice. And so this is another issue. We have this tension between, you know, not all people agree with what should actually happen once the repatriation process takes place. Well, what is the reply of those who want to decolonize museums to the claim that, hey, the museums, they bought the goods fair and square on the open air market. Here's our bill of sale. Yes, this is one of the major arguments made against repatriation, that these objects were legally obtained or were purchased. And yet it's important to actually look into those instances of purchase. Many were forced or coerced. I have an example in the book of a mask that was bought from Dakar for seven francs, which was about a dozen, the price of a dozen eggs at that time. So this is also another kind of, let's put this in perspective, think about scale. There are many other arguments against repatriation. The British Museum specifically is so worried about setting a precedent. For example, they're even reluctant to return a number of drawings that were stolen by the Nazis to its original origin. Because why? It would open the door for Greece to pursue its claims to the Parthenon marbles. There's sort of a Pandora's box argument. Like if you return one thing, everything else will be returned. And perhaps the most popular argument against repatriation is this concept of universal knowledge. You know, the role of the museum to preserve the cultural property of all humankind. Well, that's, and this a, was, that's a very tempting you know, argument, at least to me. It is a tempting argument. Um, and, you know, universalism has a place uh, and it's very compelling. Unfortunately, in order for true decolonization to happen, we need to really reckon with, with the truth and often very uncomfortable truths. And universalism can be a way to whitewash that truth. What about the corollary to that argument of universalism? Hey, you know, we're the British Museum, we're the American uh, Museum of Natural History. All the experts are here. We're going to take the best care of these artifacts. You know, that's our business. We know how to do that. We have the resources to do that. Yeah, I think that argument is also compelling. Um, But it's important to keep in mind First of all, there are a number of state-of-the-art museums within the Global South. For example, the Museum of Black Civilization in Senegal, where you have entire empty rooms awaiting the return of African artifacts that are still held in European institutions. And these are well-financed museums with proper cooling systems. Um, They're really kind of ready to go for these repatriated objects. I also think that argument has a tendency to look past the rich history of conservation practices within Black and Indigenous communities. In many cases, colonial incursion actually destroyed these systems of preservation and care. We can think of the the libraries of Timbuktu, the Geniza of Egypt, all of these incredible pre-imperial systems and institutions that, you know, they knew they had the professionalism, they had the expertise, they had the tools, and thinking about 
professionalism and care um, in this kind of limited way that only America or only Europe knows how to take care of these artifacts erases that history. Shimrit, you say a walk through a museum is fundamentally the consuming of a narrative. So just what is the narrative that a large institutional museum is trying to put forth? There are many different narratives. The one that I focus on in the book is the narrative of imperialism as a project that is humane, that's aesthetically pleasing, and that is scientifically important. The museum tells a story, whether we are conscious of it or not, of all of these values. And at the center of these values is an imperial narrative. And that that was tied in with white supremacy and a sort of distorted view of what Darwin was saying, wasn't it? Exactly. And I mean, if you look at early museums and how they were arranged, they often told a very evolutionary story, arranging objects in sort of teleological or a historical timeline in which non-European others were relegated to a past era, whereas the European, the white European, was seen as further along in this imaginary timeline, more advanced, more scientific. And I mean, we see that today when you go into the American Museum of Natural History, you'll see non-European people frozen behind glass um, in these various dioramas. And yet, of course, there's no European equivalent within the museum. It's only the non-European who's sort of petrified in this narrative. A museum is a sort of a locus where large sums of money are traded and donated. Our audience is pretty sophisticated, and I think many of them have heard of the term greenwashing, Mm -hmm. where big corporations pretend like they're environmentally conscious, or pinkwashing, where governments or corporations pretend they're amenable to uh, LBGTQ issues. You have a term in the book that I never came across. You say Museums are a site for art washing. So tell us about that, what you mean by art washing. Well, I think that art, contemporary art, can really be used for a variety of purposes. Um, of The Sackler family, for example, a very infamous family involved with the opioid crisis and how these big names, the Koch brothers, for example, as well, stick their names on these exhibit halls, give gifts to museums, use art as a way to brand themselves as cultured, as giving back to the city, but in a way which erases their own complicity with various forms of toxicity, like the the opioid crisis, for example. And so actually, I, um, I believe the Met has recently announced that it's going to be dropping the Sackler name from its exhibit halls. And so I think more and more people are are waking up to this fact of, you know, they're seeing right through the art washing. And, you know, the museums aren't just waking up one day and realizing that for years they've been pushed by, by protesters, very visible and confrontational protesters. And so these families like the Sacklers can, can try to art wash, but it's been largely not, not successful. Are all museums hopeless? <laughs> is, the, is the concept of a museum outdated? I mean, if you were a mm. curator, what would your decolonized museum look like? I'm not in favor of completely abolishing the museum. I think it can be a really fantastic place to preserve human knowledge, human ideas, and history. I just think that the museum in its current state is no longer tenable. I think we really need to rethink what a museum could be, even looking towards things like libraries and archives, spaces that are more open, more in tune with the needs of the local community. You also indicated that there was the possibility of the museum actively putting its contradictions on display and perhaps talking about revolutionary possibilities. Yes. Once again, the role of the artist is really important here. Um, Museums that have invited artists in to actually 
sift through museum collections in order to expose the history from a different, more critical point of view is really important here. In the book, I mention Fred Wilson's 1992 exhibit, Mining the Museum, in which he was invited into the Maryland Historical Society and really took that opportunity to rearrange their collection on display as a way to expose the links that the museum actually had with enslavement and subjugation. And I think these sorts of things can be really important if they are accompanied by real action. Shimrit, as we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to add? I would just urge your listeners to really think carefully the next time that they find themselves in a museum. Look at the labels, see where the objects are drawn from, see where, see what kinds of stories the labels tell, how the objects are arranged in space. The entire structure of the museum tells a story, and sometimes that story is not obvious. So I think we all kind of need to put on our critical glasses, so to speak, the next time we step into a museum. Well, thanks so much, Shimrit. I've been talking with Shimrit Lee, author of the excellent new book, Decolonizing Museums. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Even you got to admit, right? If someone stole something off you as an individual, it's your favorite thing, and they nicked it, and you knew who nicked it, by the way, for a fact, not a hunch. You know who's stolen it. Everybody knows it's common knowledge. Some people have written books about it. They have definitely nicked it off you. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.